stay out of my bedroom, stay out of my religious beliefs, and stay out of my wallet. Now, that might be a political statement, the kind of thing we want to say, just stay out of my private life. It might be a, 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 a personal thing we would say to a, to a nagging family member, to a, to a prying neighbor. But worse than that, this idea of, of leave me alone, stay out of my bedroom, stay out of my religious beliefs, stay out of my wallet. This is the kind of thing that you and I are prone to say to God. Maybe not so bluntly, but really we, we don't want God's commands to press too deeply. We want to be able to determine what, what is best for us, especially when it comes to those most private and intimate of relationships. We really don't want anyone telling us how we should live, how we should respond, what our religious beliefs should be. We, we live in a culture where it seems to us, shouldn't it be up to me to decide? And certainly when it comes to our wallets, our treasure, our wealth, you have no right to tell me what to do with my money. See, that's the way many of us respond. But do you notice Jesus' interactions here in the Gospel of Mark? He is, is prying into marriage relationships, theologically. He's, he's coming into the, the most personal and meaningful of relationships and saying, I'm the one who lays out the commands. He's welcoming little children, even when his disciples are, are trying to, to set the stage, their own ground rules. And he says, let the children come to me, because Jesus is the one who determines our religious response. He doesn't just leave it up to do whatever you want, however you want. No, Jesus demands lordship there. And when this rich man comes to Jesus, Jesus tells him, sell everything. Who does he think he is? Who does he think he is to tell people how they should live in the privacy of their, their own homes, in their relationships? How does he, who does he think he is that, that he can tell people the right way to come to God? Who does he think he is that he can tell people where they should put their treasure? He's God. He is the Lord of the universe, and that's what the Gospel of Mark is showing us. Do you remember as we've looked at this over, over the course of many months together? Jesus is the Son of God. He is God in our midst. Jesus is the Christ, the Lord, the, the reigning King sent by God. And so as we look at the ways in which people come to Jesus, admittedly, admittedly, I am not going to answer every question you have about this, these texts today. I mean, this could easily be three or perhaps more sermons, but, but we, won't, we won't look at every detail because what I want us to see is when you, when you put these pieces together, which is what Mark has done for us, he's theologically placed them right next to each other. So we are meant, as the readers of his gospel, as those who hear the gospel read, to see the contrast, to see the comparison. Who is it that, that responds in the right way? Is it the religious leaders who know the law, who can quote it? Are they the ones who, who really respond to Jesus? Is it? Is it this man who everyone in the community would have said, he's the guy who has it all together? I mean, this is the kind of guy you want your daughter to bring home. 
mean, he, I mean, the other gospels tell us, I mean, we, we learn here he's rich. The other gospels tell us he's also a religious leader. I mean, he's a leader in the synagogue. He is the boy you want brought home. It's, does he figure it out? No. Who is it? Is it the disciples? Those that have been with Jesus, hearing the gospel proclaimed repeatedly. Well, their glimpses, they're starting to figure it out. And yet, even the disciples don't yet understand what it really means to follow Jesus. It's, it's these families, these parents who come bringing little children. It's the little ones and their faith. They're the, the example of what does it mean to put your trust in Jesus. And so, so let's look at, at, these, at these three different responses of the ways in which people come to Jesus. First, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Look back at verse 2. They came to Jesus and tested him. Now, this wasn't the kind of test where they were hoping Jesus was going to pass and look Jesus is this great moral teacher. We should follow him. No, this is, this is the idea here is they're looking to expose him to make sure he will fail. Because their expectation is no matter how he answers this question, he is going to anger at least half of the people standing there. But maybe even more. And what Jesus is going to do, the religious leaders think, is show himself to be so far out of the mainstream, so far out on the, on the edge of, of culture and society's expectations about what marriage is, the people will just say, he's crazy. We don't need to listen to him. Because the debate among the religious leaders in, the, in these centuries wasn't whether or not that, that marriage was permissible. It was how big of offense does your wife have to commit before you can divorce her? Is it, is it some enormous sin or is it burnt toast? That's what they're wanting to have the argument about. But, but what does Jesus do? How does he respond to them? Well, first, Jesus asks them a question. He, he's, he's both pointing them back to God's biblical commands and also challenging their real understanding of God's laws. He says, what did Moses command you? He's pointing back to God's word. Moses, the, the author of the first five books of the Bible the great prophet who led God's people out of slavery and then went up the mountain and and received the commands of God. What did Moses command you? So in verse 4, the Pharisees say, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But there you can almost see that they're again sort of inviting Jesus to, to, to make a mess of it. Jesus, what we want you to say is, how big a deal, how big a, how big a mistake does she have to make for the, 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 the bill of divorce to be provided? And what does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't just look at the command of Moses. Jesus steps back and makes them look at the broader context of God's creation ordinance. What was God's original purpose? Not just what did God, what did God allow through the law given by Moses, but what is the bigger goal of marriage? What is the purpose? And so Jesus says in verse 5, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. It's a recognition that, that every marriage we enter into, after the fall of Adam and Eve, every marriage we enter into is the marriage of two sinners. And so you are married, if, you're, if you are married, you are married to a sinner. If you're thinking about marriage, the, the one you will marry is a sinner. You are a sinner. And so, so Jesus is saying that divorce is not God's first plan for marriage. Because look at what he, what he says in verse 6. 
He, he's drawing the bigger theological conclusions. He's actually telling them, don't just look at what Moses commanded you. Look at what Moses actually taught you. Because Moses is the one who gave you the teachings of, of God's creation purposes in Genesis 1 and 2. The very beginning of Scripture, we're, we're told, at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will be united, and will be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. So they want to know the the intricacies. They're trying to trap Jesus on the intricacies of divorce, and Jesus is saying, just to understand that is insufficient. You actually need to see the the bigger purposes of God, God's command. And and you see here, I know that that culturally this kind of teaching sounds offensive to, to some of us. And culturally, the, the, the idea that marriage is a lifelong, one-flesh union between a man and a woman sounds offensive. So you and I aren't, wouldn't be, when we listen to this, we're not offended for the same reasons that the, the Pharisees are offended. See, they, they actually are willing to start with the idea that, that God gives a command and we're meant to obey it. Now, the problem is they want, to, they want to sort of weasel their way out of the commands and sort of say, well, let's just deal with this one little point. They can kind of slip themselves through, they think. See, but what you and I do, we're, we're not even willing at this point to say that God has the right to, to make any commands, to make any demands of us. See, we, we live culturally in a time when, who are you to tell me? Stay out of my bedroom. Don't tell me how I should live. But do you see what Jesus is saying? No, no, no. God has the right. I have the right, Jesus is saying, I have the right to tell you what what marriage is meant to be, what sexuality is meant to be, what gender is meant to be, because I am the creator. I'm the one who made you. And and that's offensive to us. Because we don't want God to have that kind of control over us. It's a challenge to us. Do you see Jesus is pressing the people to see their sin even more deeply? So even when the disciples are back in the house and they're they're trying to, to get Jesus to explain what just happened out there. That, that argument, that debate didn't go at all how we anticipated. When they came and they tried to test you, we thought you were, you know, like you would just throw a couple punches, you'd knock them down, and that would be done. And instead, you stepped back and gave them a theology lesson about creation. And so Jesus says, he, he's telling us how important marriage is. He's telling us to prioritize marriage. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Now, we, we have to first set this in the context of Jesus' other teaching about divorce. When, when he has this argument with the Pharisees, when, when Matthew tells us about it, he, he also tells us that Jesus does recognize that there is some sin, the sin of adultery, which can break that one flesh union. We, we, we need to understand it in the broader context of the New Testament. When the Apostle Paul says, if you're married to one who's not a believer, and that one abandons you and leaves you and turns away from God and the gospel and leaves the marriage, then, then you are free. There is, a biblical, there, there is a biblical reason to pursue divorce. And, and I know as we look at this at, at, at the big picture level, I don't have time to, to walk you through all the permutations. But the reality is that's probably a conversation that would be better if you and I sit and have. Come talk to me. Talk to one of our elders to help you walk through the, the struggles of life. But do you see what Jesus is telling them? They want to know what, what's, what's this fine point detail about what God commands. And, and Jesus steps back and says, no, 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 no. 
You actually need to view the whole world, the whole universe, through God's commands. He has greater authority than just to tell you when you can get divorced. He is the one who made you, male and female, and so he is the one who has all authority. So the Pharisees come to test Jesus. Jesus corrects them. The disciples learn from him. And then, and then as, as we move on in the passage, we see, we see families coming to Jesus. We're told people were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them. Now, this is, if, if you were here with us last week or if you've read through the Gospel of Mark, we, we remember that, that last week Jesus used a, a very similar illustration. Remember, he's with his disciples in the house. This is back in chapter 9. And in verse 37 of the preceding chapter, chapter 9, verse 37, Jesus says, but he draws a, 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 a child to himself, and he says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So what does it mean for the disciples? What, what's the lesson they should have learned in chapter 9? We should welcome those that come to Jesus, especially little children. And then what happens here in chapter 10? I mean, Mark puts these events, and they probably happened chronologically very close together, but, but in the, the order of, of Mark's gospel, they're, they're very close to each other. You and I haven't forgotten the lesson. The disciples surely should not have forgotten the lesson, but what did the disciples do? No, no, no. You see, you don't understand. Jesus He's, he's in the midst of an important teaching ministry. He has to, to spend his time with the, the religious leaders confronting them. Don't, don't waste his time with little children. I mean, the language there is actually, I mean, it's, it's like handheld, little children. I mean, it's, it's, it's even smaller than the child that we saw in the chapter before. And, and, and the disciples are stopping people from coming. They're rebuking the people. And so what does Jesus do? What's Jesus' response? Look at verse 14. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. With whom? Not with the parents, not with the children, with the disciples. He had just told them, you must welcome little ones in my name. When you welcome them, you welcome me. When you welcome me, you welcome God who sent me. And the very first opportunity the disciples have to put this plan into practice, they rebuke the families. They rebuke the children. And so Jesus is angry. And so he tells them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. The kingdom of God is theirs. They belong in God's kingdom. It belongs to them. They are part of God's family. Again, Jesus is reminding us that the, the, the test of our authentic faith one of the ways we can test it is, are we willing to serve and love the, the littlest, the least, the, the most helpless? Think of it. Any, any church that isn't caring for little ones, that doesn't have a, a, a heart's desire to, to reach the, the next generation, the generations that are coming, isn't following Jesus' commands. It means to welcome those that are in need. And it, it, it means... Sometimes as simply as, you know what, I can help. I can hold a baby in a nursery. I can teach the, the message of the gospel to children in Sunday school. I can be here on Wednesday nights for pioneer clubs. I can serve in junior church. It, it means to, to welcome the little children, not to rebuke them or, or push them aside or say, you know what, that's a, that's a question that's better learned later. No. The kingdom is theirs. 
So families are coming to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He blesses the children. He takes the children in his arms. He puts his hands on them. He blesses them. Jesus is is very publicly, very clearly teaching his disciples a lesson, teaching the crowds a lesson. But what does it mean to follow him? And he actually uses then children as an example in verse 15. He says, I tell you the truth. Again, there's that, a phrase that, that Mark's, Mark uses to, to capture the, the, the teaching ministry of Jesus when Jesus wants to emphasize a point. I tell you the truth. Here's the lesson you're supposed to take from this moment. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. See, it's not the religious leaders who know all of the commands, who can quote the law. No, that's not what it takes to come to Jesus. It means to come to him in this simple faith of a child, like a little child would do, to to love Jesus, to be received by him, to be blessed by him. And then we we see this, this third instance, this third person come to Jesus. Look at verse 17. As, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him. I mean, he's, 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 there's an urgency. There's a, there's a commotion. There's, a, there's a, a sense of drama happening in, in what happens here. This man comes running up to Jesus and falls on his knees before him. And he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, is there a more profound question in all of Scripture? A more clear and direct question? That, that sets the table for Jesus to explain the gospel with clarity, to, to stop and say, this is why I came? No, it's, it's, it's an important question, and one you and I really need to know the answer to. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But surprisingly here, Jesus doesn't immediately give him the answer. Because Jesus knows this man. And he knows that if he gives him a, 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 an answer that's too quick, that's too easy, that, that the man will, will walk away self-righteous, proud about all that he's accomplished. And so Jesus, again, responds to someone who comes to him with a question. Someone who comes with the wrong motives or flawed motives. He, re, he asks a question, Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. Now, it's true in the ancient languages, including Greek, in which the, this was written, or the other languages of, of the ancient world, that, that to use the, the word good, it, it has a pretty broad conceptual range, like it does in English. You can say that that piece of cake from Hope Church was good. You can say that test score was good. You can say that person is good. And so, why is Jesus focusing in on that, that one little word? It's because he's, he's again, forcing the, the, the questioner, the, the person coming to him, to step back and to see a broader, bigger picture. Again, Jesus is going to lay claim to, to every aspect of this man's life. Just like when the Pharisees came, Jesus steps back to give them a bigger theological perspective, and Jesus lays claim to, to the commands, the authority of God over even marriage. And so here, Jesus is challenging him actually to, to come to a deeper understanding of, of Jesus' goodness, but also his own. Because we'll see that the man thinks he's actually pretty good. So Jesus lists for him 
the commands of God. This is the the second table of, of the Ten Commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. And now, perhaps it should take us aback, how does the, the man respond? Teacher, all of these have I kept since I was a boy. I mean, you and I, understanding what Jesus is trying to do, should, should step back and horror at, at oh, wow. That was definitely not the right way to respond. To think that when Jesus lists the Ten Commandments, you could say, oh yeah, I'm good. Got those all covered. I have, I have the commands of God all figured out. Actually, even when I was a little boy, I had this figured out. I mean, this is, if, if that's all it takes, it just takes keeping those, those handful of commandments, then I'm good. But don't you see, he's not good at all. Because like you and me, he comes to Jesus with a flawed understanding of himself. Thinking that if I can just keep a a set of guidelines, a set of rules, then I'll be okay. If I can go through some sort of religious ritual and observance, I'll I'll be okay. But what is Jesus doing? He's, he's, He's trying to press the man deeper. No, to keep those commands is more than just that you haven't physically murdered someone. Elsewhere in Jesus' teachings, he'll he'll talk about anger. Meaning that if if you get angry and and call someone someone names in in anger, then then that's, that's breaking the commandment. If you look lustfully at someone, that's breaking the commandment of adultery. And so, no, this man is is not that good. Look at verse 21. Because this helps us see how Jesus responds. Jesus looked at him and loved him. This is one of those profound moments in the Gospels. Here is a man who just walked up to Jesus and said, I've got it covered. I'm good. I'm on my way into heaven. I have this figured out. If that's all it takes, I am good. He's just exposed himself to have a flawed view of of who he is. And Jesus looks at him and loves him. And so Jesus now presses deeper with him. This might not be your biggest problem, but it was this man's, his money, his wealth. This was where his identity was found. This is where his purpose was found. And so Jesus says, okay, then just one thing. You only lack one thing. Sell everything you have. Sell it all. Give it away. And then come follow me. Because if you give it all, If you give it away, then you will store up for yourself treasure in heaven. You will have treasure in heaven. And we just saw that that profound moment when Jesus, in love, looks at this man. But then what is this man's response? Look at verse 22. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. See, he wasn't willing to follow Jesus. He wasn't willing to give up his wealth. When Jesus stops and looks at you, when he confronts your goodness, what would he ask you to give up? Maybe for you it would be very similar to what he told this man. 
For you and I live in an age and in a country where wealth is something we prize, something we treasure. It's something we trust. We've established ourselves. We've, we've, we've protected ourselves. We, what if Jesus asked me to give that up? And actually, many of us are, 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 are doing what this man was doing theologically, thinking this is what gives me significance and purpose. This is, is the thing in which I can trust. This is where my hope rests. This is what will get me to heaven. Now, a few years ago, uh, former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg, he's a, millionaire, a billionaire. I mean, he's one of the, the richest men in the world. He's a, he's a philanthropist. He, he's served in, in public service. He's, he's served for social causes. And so when he was asked, the New York Times reports, when he was asked about God, this is what, what Michael Bloomberg said. I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I am heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It is not even close. Now, from a Christian point of view, that's the kind of thing that you, if you're in line next to him, you kind of take a couple steps back. Because <laughs> you think, I don't want to be here when, when, when you're confronted with your sin. Because you and I wouldn't be stupid enough, foolish enough, arrogant enough to say that, would we? Would we? Or is that exactly what we say? We just don't get quoted in the New York Times. Are we saying, well, you know what, God? That I won't give up. That is where my identity is. That's where my goodness is. That's where my trust is. And so what is Jesus asking you to give up? Perhaps it is your wealth, your possessions, and Jesus is telling you today, sell it all all of it. I mean, sometimes you, you want me as a preacher to, to sort of soften the edges on Jesus's teaching, right? Like, well, I mean, how about not all of it? How about just, you know, some of the stuff off the top that'll, you know, not really have to change the, the way I live or the way I serve or, or, or my future? Now, do you see what Jesus is saying? Give up everything for me. That's the, the lesson he's been teaching us. He returns to this idea that, that the first will be last, but the last will be first. Jesus is saying, I am the Lord with authority over every part of your life. I can tell you how to spend your money. I can tell you how to live your life. I can tell you the, the definition of who you are because Jesus says, I am the Lord. And so here, the, the disciples recognize that if, if this guy, if this man, this, this religious leader, this rich man, if he can't get into heaven, then who can? And Jesus, Jesus uses uh, this, this image here. Children, look at verse 24. Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. All right, now, kids. Think about how big a camel is. Now, I know you probably don't see camels every day. The people hearing this the first time would have seen camels every day. But you've, kids, you've been to the zoo. Now think of, a, think of a little needle and the tiny little eye of a needle. That's that little hole where you put the thread through. Can you squeeze a camel through that tiny little hole? No. It's impossible. It can't be done. And so what Jesus is telling him, it's impossible for the, for the rich man to get himself to heaven. And so the disciples now, they, they, they're amazed. And so they, they ask the question, look at verse 26. Who then can be saved? If he can't do it, because 
Because actually, Jesus, I was kind of on his side in this. I actually, if we were kind of testing how good he was, I thought he was doing pretty well. I mean, he had it all together. Kept the commandments, led in the synagogue. I mean, he's a, a man that's clearly been blessed by God. Look how fabulously wealthy he is. If he can't be saved, then who can be saved? And so Jesus makes clear that that, that, that imagery of a, of a camel, the, the you know, largest mammal that they would have seen regularly, that it's impossible for that camel to go through the eye of a needle, he, he makes that explicit theologically in verse 27. With man, this is impossible. It is impossible for you to save yourself. There is nothing that you can do. Nothing. It's impossible. Thankfully, that's not the end of verse 27. With man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Don't you see how it's possible? How is it possible for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven? How is it possible for children to be blessed by God? How is it possible for religious leaders to to be turned from their own self-righteousness? It's by Jesus the one who is teaching, the one who who came to serve, to give his life. Think of it, the Pharisees want to to put themselves in a position of, look how good I am. Look at how I've kept every part of God's commandments. And what does Jesus do? He exposes their, their failures, their small ideas of who God is. But who is Jesus? He is the great commandment keeper. The one who keeps every one of God's commandments down to the tiniest letter of Moses' law. But more than that, Jesus is the one, the first human to finally fulfill God's plan for humanity, to be a true son, an obedient son, to to accomplish what, what Adam could not accomplish. Jesus is the perfect law keeper. When the children come to Jesus, Jesus is the the one who blesses. He's the one who has that authority from God. And the rich young man who thinks he can get himself to heaven stands before one who, who from an earthly standard has nothing to his name. Jesus, by their standards, is poor. And yet, think of it. Jesus is the rich, young man. His wealth is fabulously beyond all they could think or even imagine. He is the king of heaven, the creator of the universe. He is the one who has all power and dominion and authority. It's all his. And yet, what does he do? He doesn't use his riches for himself. He has given everything for his father's purpose. Everything. To be born a human, to keep the law, to serve sinners, and to give his life. That's his purpose. He'll remind them again in the verses which follow. He's told them already, repeatedly, that this was why he came to give his life. And so even when when Peter, now still I think foolishly, in verse 28 says, well, that guy, he wasn't willing to give up his money, but, but Jesus, we have left everything. I mean, we have. I mean, that guy hasn't, but we have. Again, Peter, I don't think, is understanding it. Peter it's impossible for you to get yourself to heaven. But again, what does Jesus do? He, he speaks compassionately because Peter's on the right path. Because what does it mean to get, how do you get yourself 
to heaven. What do you need to do to inherit eternal life? You must give up everything and follow Jesus. To trust in him and Jesus, yes, that you will, you will, this will come with persecutions. I mean, we might in verse 30 wish that the, the blessing we, we receive from God, we could, we could cross out that part of the verse. Because following Jesus will come with persecutions. But in the age to come, it, it offers eternal life. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to give up everything. The safety, the security of, of our wealth, to now just invest it in Jesus' kingdom. It means to give up our, our, our expectations that we are the ones who are good enough in ourselves. To see the, the frailty in us, the brokenness, and to turn to Jesus. Jesus wants us to give up everything. Because he reminds us again in verse 31, many who are first will be last, and the last first. The language survey team traveled by cover of night, winding through the countryside on on treacherous mountain roads. They worked to avoid border checkpoints. They risked expulsion from the country. They risked arrest, or even worse. But nothing was as dangerous for these Wycliffe missionaries than their destination. That's how a, a story, a reminder about this team going to the, the Mida people of, of Southeast Asia, a, a people isolated in the remote regions of the mountains. But it wasn't just getting to them that was dangerous because this people group, they shared a common belief that, that at least once every three years, you had to do something evil or you'll die. Now, that seems so bizarre and strange to us, that you have to do something evil. And usually it had to work itself out in in very big and violent ways. And so this team knew that, yes, as missionaries going to, to a hostile region of the world, they were risking persecution. But the greatest threat was the people to whom they were taking the gospel. But despite the danger... Everyone on the team agreed that the harm they might experience, the persecution that would come, was worth the risk to make sure that the gospel was proclaimed. That's what Jesus is asking you to do today. Give up everything to follow him. He's the Lord of of every part of your life. And Jesus is the one who gave up everything for you.